Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 165. So glad you could join me. Today's guest, Cindy Veach, will be here in just a little bit. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. Um, so if you enjoy what we do, please do click the like button and share and make sure you're subscribed. Anything you can do to help spread poetry around the internet would be much appreciated. Uh, you might notice we're, we're uh, filming from our new office, which is um, brighter and hopefully lighter. Um, the last office I did not make in, with the plan of having a, a web live stream going on. So the walls were dark brown and it felt like broadcasting from a cave. Now we have a white room, which is probably uh, a little bit better for those watching anyway. But um, good to see everybody today. Um, as always, we're going to start with our Poets Respond poet. And we have Sunday's poet here on the line. Matt Honer is here. Uh, hey, Matt. How you doing? Oh, Matt, I'm not getting any audio. I think you're on mute. Yeah, there you go. I'm good. Thank you very much. Yeah. So um, you had a wonderful poem, Drone God. Just so moving. Um, and, and just one of those poems that sticks with you after you read it. Do you want to explain um, a little bit what was what inspired the poem? And, and I don't know if people, you know, there's a warning under it, the link, to watch it. Because the the video is very disturbing. And the sort of the, um, I don't know, just the... the the, the simplicity of it or the, or the just the, you know, the way that it just plays out there silently on the video. But, but tell us what the what inspired the poem. So um, I've been paying attention to um, what's going on in Ukraine, and uh, I've probably watched a lot more video about uh, or of what's happening there uh, than any healthy person should. Um, uh, definitely not anywhere as bad as what's actually happening uh, to the folks. And I think that's where the poem kind of uh, generated. It's the idea that we can watch these, these moments of pure violence and, and, and horror uh, over here in our safe little offices with our bookshelves behind us and our little glass of fresh, clean water next to us. And these, these things are happening not just in Ukraine. Um, there are almost nightly or daily gun deaths here in Baltimore that we'll see on the news and we can change the channel, hit mute and feel like it doesn't affect us. And so I wanted to kind of capture that sense of feeling affected yet outside everything is normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it just, it's so striking, um, you know, having these images played before us, and then we have to go about our regular lives um, and and live as if somewhere in the world this kind of thing isn't happening. And to describe it for people who haven't watched, it's described a little bit in the poem, but it's drone footage from over the top of um, two two men, two Russian soldiers, in a uh, in a trench, sort of lying there um, as it's described in the poem. And then it drops a small bomb on, and um, and you watch the whole thing, and you watch the aftermath as well in this little video that was tweeted out by a journalist there. Um, and so that was the inspiration for this poem. Let's hear it. Why don't you read it, Matt? Drone God. The video is silent. The bomb smaller than a trenching tool. It falls to the ambient sounds of your home. The neighbor's children playing outside in the street. Autumn birds calling to each other in the trees. The bomb adorned in blue and gold stripes shrinks towards two men in a foxhole curled close like twins in a womb, colored in the drab palette of battle. 
the hue and shade of the soil that will consume their bodies. You are a god, or what's replaced him, above it, watching the bomb descend like a terrible word from your mouth, like spittle. The bomb blasts inches from the men's knees. Debris kicks up towards your face, hovering over the scene. Dust shakes loose in a cloud from the ground surrounding them. As the smoke clears, one man drags himself out by an arm, legs kicking, faltering. The other lurches and rises, fumbling in concussed stupor. Your last glimpse of the men is the moment the end of the first man's left arm blossoms bright red where his hand used to be. Outside your window, children laugh and squeal on scooters, on skateboards, on bicycles. Steam creaks in the warming radiators. A breeze shakes leaves loose from the trees, showering the children in confetti of gold, umber, auburn, crimson, under a cloudless sky. And that was Matt Honor, of course, reading Drone God, Sunday's poem from Rattle.com. Uh, thanks so much, Matt, for sharing that poem. Really powerful stuff. And just puts, puts a lot of things into perspective, reading it and, and sharing it. So thanks so much for sharing that and joining us tonight. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, take care. Um, so now we're going to take a uh, little gander. I, I always imagine part of the show would be um, sharing some poems like a disc jockey would or something. And so I wanted to share another poem before we go to our main guest tonight. And uh, the poem I'm going to do is uh, I came up with a random button after a couple clicks. And this is a fun one, um, especially for all you submitters out there. This is Richard Prinz with Bless Me Editor. So let's enjoy this poem, and then we'll go to a quick break, and then we'll talk to our main guest tonight. But here uh, is Bless Me Editor by Richard Prinz. Bless me, editor, for I have sinned. It has been six months since my last submission. During that time, I got liquored up on a few hundred occasions, often to forget my responsibilities, and sometimes in pursuit of carnal relations. I also accepted key bumps in a few divey bathrooms, even though I never liked that crap, and snorted lines of ecstasy to mark certain milestones in a hedonistic manner. I only went to church once, editor, unless you count meetings to resist our president that happened to take place inside of a church where I gained more sustenance than I ever do noshing on the body of Christ. Editor, I do not recall taking your name in vain, though I didn't thank you for your consideration last time you rejected me. But I sure cursed my lord and savior every chance I got. Every time I missed a bus, stubbed my toes, spilt a drink, or checked my bank statement near the end of the month. Moreover, I participate in the capitalist economy every day by making purchases of questionable practicality, by making payments on loans and accepting payments of rent, by owning property and thereby fomenting the oppression of mankind. And I did not give money to everyone who asked me, even though I've read the Bible and know it's what Jesus would do, no matter if they were rude, flaky, or an ex-girlfriend. Editor, did Jesus have ex-girlfriends? And several times I became disconsolate and grumpy when my partner did not, not want to have relations with me. And several times I became anxious she might have relations with someone who was not me, even though I had relations with people who were not her and felt sad about it and complained about that sadness to my partner who loves me as only a goddess could and deserves neither my mistrust nor my hypocrisy. Therefore, I never lied to her editor, but I lied in small ways to almost everyone else and never sees considering myself an exceptionally honest person. 
Editor, I picked my nose and ate the boogers no matter how many bystanders I disgusted. I littered and defiled our planet, tossed dead batteries in my household trash, and I did not recycle everything I could recycle. Editor, I grew too easily frustrated with my daughter's mother, even though she is a commendable mother, and when I visited their home, I did not resist patriarchal exigencies, or change an equitable amount of diapers, or cook or do much cleaning, and though I thanked the Lord profusely for my baby's health and beauty, and though my prolonged absences from her life are surely penance for sins long past, I still don't comprehend how joy and pain can feed each other so lavishly. It's dark in here, editor. I can't see you and didn't bother learning your name. Are all my sins written in my face? Do you know how much I'm not telling you because it would be too lurid to print? Have you already stopped reading? I made derogatory comments about puppies. Editor, I just don't like them. I referred to police officers as pigs while marching for black lives. Although I believe dehumanizing language is amoral and violent, I did not believe it was my place to amend a mass chant. I was probably blocking traffic at the time, which is a violation, not a sin. But the pigs didn't arrest me for it, so it falls on you to punish me, editor. For I have lived as a cis and mostly straight white male, mindlessly accumulating privilege and dressing in a manner that could be described is culturally appropriative, and I submit to you that I allowed too many white people to smile at me in the days following the 2016 presidential election. Though I pined for their swift and just obliteration from the earth, which is violent and sinful, I did not include that wish for the white race's annihilation in my prayers, which is surely just as sinful. I mean, don't you agree God should just fucking smite us already? And I harbored baleful thoughts towards anyone who obstructed me on the subway or sidewalk, even though I habitually obstructed others on the subway and sidewalk. And I harbored lustful thoughts for a mushroom burrito last week and did not stop myself from committing gluttony. And I harbored jealous thoughts whenever someone I knew was being published or celebrated more than me. But nevertheless, I cowered from risk in my own writing and spent many afternoons throwing back mojitos at the beach with my partner basking in her splendor when I should have been clamping my ass to my ratty swivel chair and digging the real poems out of my chest. So here they are, my detestable sins against our human enterprise, for which I ask your absolution, editor, who art good and deserving of my love, with my whole depraved heart, I regret offending thee. And that was Richard Prince once again. I don't know if it's just me, but that poem always cracks me up. Maybe it's because he's talking to editors. Um, but but I thought that was hilarious. Hope you guys enjoyed it, too. Uh, that was Richard Prince with Bless Me, Editor from Red Number 58. Uh, now we're going to quick br- take a quick break and get back to our main guest, Cindy Veach. Um, so sit tight, uh, and we'll be right back with Cindy Veach. And we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. Like I said, today's guest is Cindy Veach. Cindy's the author of Her Kind uh, from Cavan Carey Press, a finalist for the Eric Hoffer um, Montagne Medal, Gloved Against Blood from Cavan Carey Press as well, named a Patterson, Patterson Poetry Prize finalist in the Massachusetts Center for the book Must Read, and the chapbook Innocence, Nix's Mate Press. Her poems have appeared in the Academy of American Poets Poem a Day series, Agni, Chicago Review, Prairie Schooner, and elsewhere. Um, her poem... The, this patch where the light cannot reach was selected by Mary Ruffle for the Philip, or Philip Booth Poetry Prize. And her silent crown, Witch Kitch, was selected by Marilyn Nelson for the Samuel Washington Allen Prize. 
I'm sending her student MFA from the University of Oregon, where she was a graduate teaching fellow and an assistant poetry editor for Northwest Review. And now she's co-poetry editor of MomEgg Review. So we'll talk about that, too. Uh, but here she is, Cindy Veach. Hey, Cindy. How are you doing? Great. How are you? Yeah, great. It was great to read this book today. I, I just I love books with themes that are and this is such a strong um, and really powerful theme to go with it. Um, do you want to start out by reading a poem? Sure. Um, yes, I'm going to read a poem on page 20. Okay. And this is um, somewhat of a found poem from, from an article. Um, Reasons you might have been accused of being a witch in 1692. You were a woman. You are middle-aged. You have an extra nipple, mole, freckle, or basically any other mark on your body. You stumble over your words. You have an extra nipple, mole, freckle. When asked to say a prayer, you stumble over the words. You are married, but don't have children. When asked to say a prayer, you are the envy of other people. You are married, but don't have enough children. You associate with someone suspected of witchcraft. You are the envy of other people. You are perceived as bitchy. You associate with someone suspected of witchcraft. You are milk spoiled. You are perceived as bitchy. You are of low status. Your milk spoiled or anything vaguely negative that happened to or around you. You are of low status. You have any mark on your body. Your milk spoiled. You are a woman. You are middle-aged. Those reasons you might have been accused of being a witch in, in 1692. Again, from her kind, a great poem to start out with. Um, so, Cindy, the, the fascinating thing is, is that you... Um, um, you live you lived in Salem for a long time for decades, right? Before writing this book, and so so can you describe how this book came to be? Because the book deals with um, with witches throughout history, or people being called witches, and kind of reclaims that as well. Um, so, what was it that made you want to write about this, and, and how did the the process of the book shape your view of the Salem witch trials, which is something you've been so familiar with living there for so long? Yeah. So great question. Um, I lived um, not in Salem, but in the Salem area, um, just a few miles away for 30 years. And, you know, all the hoopla around Halloween um, and pretty much all year round in Salem, it just I never really thought about the trials um, until one day when I was this was in 2016 cutting through an alley and I came upon the um, Salem Witch Trials Memorial where um, I was so moved by what I saw. There's a bench for each of the 20 victims and um, a threshold that contains their words carved in the threshold. And it just, I, I don't know, it was just like this epiphany that these were human beings, innocent people that were murdered. And yet the town really makes its livelihood on the witch kitch aspect of the Salem Witch Trial. So I started with wanting to write a poem about each of the 20 victims. Um, and that became the chapbook, Innocence. But as I was working on that, um, I also was going through a divorce after a very long marriage and Donald Trump was elected president. And you know, all these things sort of converged. And I realized that this was becoming a book. It was more than a chat book. And it needed to include these other elements. So that's kind of where it started. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and um, do you want to read another poem to get more of a sense of what, what we're dealing with? Yeah. Here? Yeah. So, yes. The next poem I'll read is on page three. Um, it's called I Witch. 
this is a, a poem that actually starts the book and it does bring in um, the divorce theme. And one thing I should mention is many of the poems have um, italicized text, which are actually um, words or phrases from the actual um, testimonies of the, of the individuals that were executed. It's called I Witch. So what if I woke up changed? It's not like I'm a wild hog or some evil thing, not a real hog that follows you home, jumps into the window, a monkey with cock's feet with claws. <clears throat> Don't believe what my accuser says or believe it. The fact is my divorce attorney's building sits on the side of the prison where they kept the accused in chains in 1692. I came there with a silk scarf worn loosely at the neck, borders looped with colored thread. He came with daisies, dark chocolate and proclaimed, my wife came towards me and found fault with me. Downstairs in the dungeon, they chained us to the walls to keep our spirits from escaping in the likeness of a bird. And that was I Witch, again from Her Kind by Cindy Veach, today's guest on the Rattlecast. Um, so Cindy, how, how did you become a poet? Is that something that you always wanted to be? Is it something that you came to later in life? Is there something that like triggered that and, and made you want to become a poet? Um, I started writing poetry when I was about 13. Mm -hmm. um, maybe dealing with adolescence, you know, I don't know. I just started to write poems then. And, and then when I was in college, I took a lot of um, uh, creative writing courses and a poetry course. And that's pretty much what, you know, I decided or whatever I was going to, um, you know, want to be a poet. Mm -hmm. But it, it, then I ended up doing a MFA at the University of Oregon about five years after college. But then I, you know, what happens to a lot of women, I, I married, I had two children, I had a full-time corporate job and poetry took a back burner for like 20 years. Mm -hmm. So the first book I published was 2017. Mm -hmm. I was 63 years old. Uh -huh. so it, yeah. Well, congratulations. I, I mean, a lot of people would love to hear that because there's a sense that like, it's too late to start sometimes with the, you know, like an emphasis on younger poets and, and that kind of thing that, that comes around in the poetry community. So a lot of people are worried that like that age is too, too late to start, but obviously not. Have you had any um, difficulties with that in that respect that you, um, you know, feel like it's it's more difficult starting out later? Or do you think it just was easier maybe? Um, well, I think, as you said, there's just a lot of emphasis on the younger poets and, you know, that feeling that, yeah, you know, I'm never going to be in, in that category. And uh, but for me, it was just a, a passion, you know, and it was something that I put aside um, and then once my kids were grown, I mean, I never stopped writing, but I actually didn't send out and published for 18 years, a, mm -hmm. a single poem. Um, I just was not a good multitasker, you know, at a very busy corporate job. And um, I never stopped thinking about it, but it wasn't until the kids were, you know, off in college that I was able to really put my attention toward it again. So, mm -hmm. I mean, for me, it feels good, you know. And no matter what your age, you know, uh -huh. I could go for it, you know? Yeah, for sure. Um, was it, I'm trying to understand the timeline. Did the chat book come first? Was that the first thing that you published? Um, the uh, Innocence? Um, actually, Gloved Against Blood was the first book. Uh -huh. so that was 2017. And then um, 
Innocence wasn't published. I think it was 2020. Mm -hmm. So I kind of wrote all those poems, but, and then I started on her kind Mm -hmm. and that, that got published actually later. Yeah. Um, Was there, so, so what was your first book? Um, Was there a theme or a topic for that? Yeah, there is a theme. It's, um, it's themed around the um, food cotton mills Mm -hmm. in Lowell, Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. where my great um, grandmother was a mill girl. Yeah. So again, it was sort of a project book. It uh-huh. was sort of, sort of the, you know, my mother's side of the family and that whole um, factory experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so what brought you to the Salem area? Did you grow up there, or? Um... No, I actually came to New England um, after my um, MFA program um, for a job for, for at a at a company, and I ended up, you know, staying there mm-hmm. for you know, 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, very yeah. cool that you could turn that experience into this book because it's really a great book. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah. Would you like to read another poem? Sure. Um, yeah. So um, the poem I'm going to read is on page six. It's titled Spectral Evidence. This was a type of testimony in which a witness could claim that um, the accused person had appeared to them, you know, in a dream or as an apparition and done something to them. So the actual person could, didn't have to have been present in order to be accused. And that was allowed in the courts. Spectral evidence. Because she said she saw, and therefore these pinholes in her skin on one arm to be exact. Look how they crisscross, make a doily of the flesh. And because she said she saw you, not you, take a small pin from your pocket, a straight pin with a flat head. And because she said it was, it was, therefore you, therefore not a dream, puncturing each pore, you in the flesh, not flesh, with a common pin. And that was spectral evidence from... uh from her kind. So in the, in the course of writing this book, um, what did you learn about the Salem witch trials? Cause I, um, and what is you, do you, do you have an opinion about what triggered it? Was it, was it just like a, a mass hypnosis type thing? Or, um, I read a book once, um, that had the premise and it was backed up by evidence, but no way to prove it that, um, there was a, I think a, a kind of bread mold. Cause there was like a tough, a tough, like harvest. And then there was a really wet year, and then they were like digging to the bottom of their their resources, and then I think this mold on the grain that was a hallucinogen, and so people were actually having like psychotic episodes, um, and imagining seeing things that triggered it, and then it sort of spiraled from there. Um, do you have any sort of sense of like of the actual history of? I mean, I, I think that's a fringe view, um, but but is there any kind of sense you have of like what actually happened and what caused it? There are a lot of theories, including the one that you talk about and i don't know how fringe that is really but um well at the time it was it was yeah. like 20 years ago I read that book, yeah so. they're still talking about it i mean i don't think i mean what i lean toward is that it was sort of political mm-hmm. and um and religious and you know based on land a lot of it was based on land mm-hmm. um landowners and wanting more land and so so people were um, accusing you know people to try to get their land like if someone was a witch they'd have to give up their land and yeah i mean there was just a lot of politics involved Mm -hmm. and and there and also you know puritan you know the puritans were you know any anyone that was not living within the puritan values was at risk Mm -hmm. um especially in the beginning you know Mm -hmm. things like if you don't have if you didn't have enough children 
Or if you'd lost a lot of children because they had passed away from illness, you would be suspect. So, yeah, I don't I don't think there's any clear answer on exactly what it was. And there are, are a lot of various theories. Mm-hmm. But Yeah, I mean, the the mass psychosis stuff, and there's such an interesting history with that, with like the laughing sickness. Have, have Did you research any of the other similar episodes like that? Um, mm-hmm. like, like one, the laughing sickness one is, I think somewhere in Africa, there's a, there's a tribe in Africa and it was after, um, there'd been kind of a war and a famine, like a very stressful time. And someone started, a, a little girl started laughing like uncontrollably and couldn't stop. And it spread as if it was a virus, but it was just a mm-hmm. psychological contagion where like the person would think they contracted this laughing virus. It was like the, the tension that had built up over years. Um, have, have you researched any of that going into that? Because that's like a fascinating aspect of what happened in Salem. Just the way that 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 yeah. mental—it's like a mental virus that spreads between people. It is. I mean, there's actually there's one poem I was going to read it, but I, I maybe I'll read it, um, which was about something called umancy, mm-hmm. which is um, when you you drop an egg in water, and when you look at how the the albumin forms, and you, you see things in it, and there's a theory that two of the women, the girls that were the accusers had done this mm-hmm. and they saw something and they went hysterical. And so again, like you're saying, this laughing sickness, it maybe was similar to that. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to read that poem? Sure. It's on page 29. Okay. Umancy triggers witch hunt because albumin in water shapeshifts becomes bells, fingers, spires, becomes omen, a future husband, his occupation, but also unexpectedly a specter in the likeness of a coffin, a sign of diabolical molestation. Elizabeth and Abigail fell into fits, barking like dogs, complaining, invisible spirits were pinching them, therefore the afflicted, therefore the accused. And that was... triggers that's another theory yeah yeah it's just so fascinating that's you know such a big event like at least in the in the cultural imagination um can have like no known cause it just sort of erupts spontaneously out of like our own the the way people are messed up i mean basically exactly Um, i mean when you think about what's happening now in politics with mm -hmm. you know the QAnon and all these theories about you know is it any different you know there Mm -hmm. is this fringe sort of extremism and where did that start you know you could where is it going yeah you know? mm-hmm. yeah i mean and, and it seems, seems like the way that religions develop too you know and, and out of that kind of like a, a cultish belief in some thing that gathers momentum and snowballs and sucks more people up um yep. scary so, yeah it really is i mean just the way that that you know, human beings are so much more than just what we think of consciously. Like so much more is going on like underneath the surface and driving us that we don't even understand. And, and that's one of the things that the Salem Witch Trials brings out, I think. Right. And also the, the how that affects the community and mm-hmm. sort of the, you know, the, the collective. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, so how much, um, like, like what kind of research did you do? Was the museum that you mentioned earlier really helpful in, in digging through records like that? I imagine. Well, yeah, I mean, the University of Virginia has um, transcribed and digitized all of the transcripts. And so they're available online to the public. So that was really my main resource. Um, And then books, you know, Salem Possessed was one of the books I've I've got. You know, there were like three books that I pretty much um, used Mm -hmm. and then stuff online. 
but really those transcripts were, I mean, they're, they're their words. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I imagine you put yourself like in their shoes a lot of the time, right? Especially reading their transcripts that are their actual words. Um, is that something like a connection that you felt? Yeah. I mean, like for each poem that I wrote about a victim, it took me a long time to find my door into that individual. So reading through the transcripts until I found something that, you know, I really responded to in a way where I could write a poem. Mm -hmm. um, and that might take, you know, days, weeks, months to, to find that little opening. Yeah. So, so how long, um, how long did the book take to, to put together with all that research um, and then the difficulty finding um, doors? Was it a while? Yeah. I mean, I probably worked on it for, you know, two and a half years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, let's hear another one. All right. So I thought um, the next couple of poems I'll read are, I call them the, the victim poems. So these are about um, some of the individuals that were executed. This one is on page seven, Elizabeth Howe of Sorrows. Um, her husband was blind, so she had to work the farm. Elizabeth Howe of Sorrows. I had to be my husband's eyes, the light that could not reach them, leading him about by the hand, tilling the land my father gave me, running the household. And for this, they would not let me come into the church of Ipswich. And for this, they said I bewitched horses, cows, sows, and was the cause of sorrows that killed the Pearlies, little Hannah. No, never in all my life. I saw I had to be the husband, eyes, mouth, muscle, and took the lead and hanged for it. Hmm. So that in that case, she was doing something that women were not supposed to do hmm. then. And also, they were not supposed to be landowners. So... Yeah. And, and so, so that's the kind of thing that you mentioned where it was about the land and about, you know, yeah. Um, and just the general, of course, misogyny, which Dick Westheimer points out here, um, you know, that, that, that fuels such craziness as Dick West, Dick said here. Um, and so, so what about that aspect of it? Um, you know, relating it through, you know, the present day, um, which is just where culture full of misogyny still and every, every culture in the world is, um, how did you realize that that was, cause you weave, you know, the present day through the, the book so well, how did you realize that that there was a thread that you could continue with poems set in the contemporary day? Well, I think, um, what triggered it for me was, you know, going through my own divorce. So mm -hmm. I'm the person who filed for divorce. I felt a lot of judgment associated with that. And, and I, felt misunderstood. So in a way I was, you know, feeling like maybe some of these female victims might've felt mm -hmm. during the witch trials. And then, you know, what was going on in politics and Trump and, you know, it just, it just all fell together for me that th those things had to be in the book. And mm -hmm. I actually decided to only include the female victims in the book because the book became very feminist as I worked on it. And so certain things became clear to me that needed to be in it and need to be left out of it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, um, let's hear another one. All right. This one is on page 55. Okay. Trump has called the investigation a witch hunt 84 times. Martha Carrier hanged 1692. They said she brought smallpox to Andover. 
They said she killed her father and brother, making her a queen in hell, AKA landowner. Neighbors testified it was none other than Goody Carrier who haunted them at night. They said she bit Sue Sheldon, threatening to cut her throat because she wanted her to sign the book. She stuck a pin in Dum and Putnam, killed Samuel Preston's cow for being very lusty. And there was that devil man whispering in her ear. Somehow she caused the death of Alan Toothacre's cat. For these complaints, though each one was a lie, she was condemned by the grace of God to die. Yeah, and that was Trump has called uh, the investigation of witch hunt 84 times, uh, which is the, the fascinating way that you weave uh, an example of how you weave through contemporary events just by changing the, the, the title to that um, adds a whole other extra layer to the poem, which is a fascinating way to write. Um, and, and the names that, that you come through make me wonder, is there a certain person in historical time that you sort of related to the most or found the most interesting and, and sort of obsessed over? Or did you feel like it was a whole pattern of characters that were worth exploring? Um, I guess I can't say that I felt in particularly close to any one of the individual female victims. They were all so different in terms of what they were accused of. Um, and, and as the, as the trials progressed, I mean, in the initial victims were tended to be women that had lived outside the Puritan norms, but as they progressed, they became more and more women that had been accepted in the society. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I just, every one of them broke my heart, you know, they were executed for things that, you know, how can you be called a witch because you lost too many children Mm -hmm. or because your husband died, you know, it's just so cruel. Um, yeah, yeah, just cruelty in a response to tragedy is like magnifies it. It's awful. Yeah. And then with you know when Trump was referring to you know the Mueller report as you know that's a witch hunt. You know it was just again that irony, similar to the witch kitch of Salem. It's like ignoring and looking past what really happened. You know that's what's scary. I mean these people were human humans victims executed murdered you know think if that were happening today in salem you know and yet you know right now salem is you know it's a madhouse thousands of people you can't even get near the the town um during the whole month of october yeah so so the whole month of october it it becomes like one of the biggest tourist places in in the northeast yeah we don't, you don't, you don't go there. If you live in the area, you do not go to Salem in October. Just... <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like here when, when it snows. <laughs> um, but yeah. Um, so, so what, in, in the course of your research, is there something you found that was the most surprising? Like you had an expectation of something being, having happened a certain way. And then you realized that your, your thought about what had happened was completely wrong. Did there any reversals like that? Well, I guess what I found, which, you know, I was so focused on the victims, to the 20 victims, right? Mm-hmm. 14 women, six men. And what I learned was there were so many more um, imprisoned, hundreds of individuals that were in prisons and kept in prison for some of them, even beyond the trials, a year, two years. Um, and that surprised me. I didn't even realize, you know, there's so much focus on the people that were executed. And 
you know, they were charged for their um, prison time in prison. Their families had it. The families went broke. Oh, wow. Their their jail cells. Oh, wow. So they wouldn't like die of starvation or something? Some of them did die Mm. in prison, but no, they were there and they were like, if you could pay more money and have a slightly bigger cell, I mean, and the, the, the tide, the water would rise and sometimes be actually in the, that, that building I spoke about where I had my divorce attorney, that literally was where the prison was. Wow. Um, that site. And apparently the water sometimes would run through the basement where some of the cells were. Wow. So those are some of the things I learned that I had no idea, mm-hmm. you know. And then the other surprising thing, I think the last um, victim was just, you know, um, forgiven by the state of Massachusetts recently. Oh, wow. I mean, Mm -hmm. it took 300 years. Yeah, 2001, you mentioned. I mean, it's crazy, Mm -hmm. you know. So that was a surprise, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, So so you already answered this question, but Jayanthi Rangan wanted to know if there were male victims, too. and and you mentioned there were six. Uh, were they charged with being witches as well, or were they like like aiding and abetting? Was it, could you be a witch and be a male? That's something I've never. Yeah, heard. I mean, they were charged as witches. Yes, mm-hmm. um, I, I think sometimes they call them wizards, but <laughs> they, they were called they were called witches. Mm-hmm. And um, interestingly, um, you know, if you confess to being a witch, you wouldn't be executed. Mm-hmm. So the people that confessed were forgiven and those that refused because they really were not witches they yeah. refused to say they were and there was one of the male victims um he he initially confessed and he was going to be exonerated but he couldn't live with himself for that lie mm-hmm. so he then said no I, I i i'm not a witch and he was killed so so wow so um so the people in jail um, were the people who refused? What happened if they if they confessed? Were there was a punishment at all, or were they just like, oh, okay, you're a witch, we'll let you go? I, there's there must have been some kind of like, don't be a witch anymore, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, I don't know. They never got to trial yeah. for those other folks and just yeah. left them in in jail. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, wow, it, it's just hard to like like how much that would take, you know, how much pride in your own, you know, sense of of honor and the truth. It would take mm-hmm. to to for those people who refused and then and then you know yeah. died for it brutally too. I mean, they were they were terrible deaths. They were hung, and they were like you know they do like eight in one day. You mm-hmm. know they just you know yeah. cart them up to the you know gallows hill and yeah and yeah. So so what into I, I never understood what the makeup of the town was. How many like what percentage of the population was like devout Puritan? And you know you say you started on the fringes and got more and more close to the the actual Puritan church. Was it um, a, a community of all people that were supposedly Puritans? Yeah, I think it was all Puritan mm-hmm. then. And and the the town, as I and you know I'm not by any means an expert on this, but what's, what's Salem now, there was Salem town and Salem village and, and one became eventually the town of Danvers. Mm-hmm. So the town was um, changing, its borders were changing. And that, that is what brought in some of the land concerns. Yeah. But, but it was, I mean, I think back in that day, everyone was Puritan. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the Puritans had settled Yeah. Mm-hmm. In, in New England. Yeah. So it was the ones that, that, pretended to be but weren't strongly devout enough at first maybe or they just did something that mm-hmm. you know like if a woman wore something that was very colorful like one of my poems with the colorful scarf 
that was not allowed if you were a Puritan. Mm -hmm. So just something like that would would cause alarm, even if that person was Puritan and was devout. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, well, if anybody has any questions for Cindy about this um, or any other questions, just leave them in the chat windows on Facebook or YouTube and I'll pass them along. Um, but in the meantime, let's hear another poem. All right. So this one is um, page 45. I filed for divorce and sundry other acts of witchcraft. Therefore, I am the earthquake and its tectonic plate, a rock chucked into a languid lake. I am the headache that keeps you awake, an unexpected snake at the end of the rake, a rock tossed into a placid lake. I am the shake that rattles the gate and the faux pas that deflates the cake, a rock dropped into a flat lake. I am a plague outbreak, the thirst you can't slake, a rock flung into a tranquil lake and the rip in something opaque. I am the damn stake in the landscape, the firebreak that forsakes, a rock cast into a still lake, the mean old drake, the keepsake that's fake, a rock hurled into a serene lake, the cause of your toothache and the failed windbreak, every mistake, a rock pitched into a quiet lake. I am the one to hate, no one's namesake, the earthquake and its tectonic plate. And that was, I filed for divorce and sundry other acts of witchcraft, therefore, from her kind. Um, so the poems in the book um, lean toward formal. Um, there are a lot of, um, there's actual sonnets, there's there's 14 line poems, there are poems that rhyme throughout like that. Um, have you always been drawn to formal poetry? And if so, why? Um, actually, I have not always been drawn to formal poetry. Um, I think in my first book, there were a couple of sonnets and maybe a, a guzzle. Um, for this book, I found in particular on the poems about the victims, the mm -hmm. sonnet form really helped me contain um, what I need to write about. Mm -hmm. It's hard to explain, but there was a lot of material and a lot of it was very emotionally charged and I just felt like I needed to contain it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and so, you know, ended up doing several sonnets. Um, as part of this book, but it hasn't been something that I'm, you know, necessarily good at or drawn to. <laughs> um, well, I mean, there's more of it in in this book than than the past, and I know they're, they're, they're my favorite poems are always formal poems, or, or they tend to be. So I, I love those. Um, and you also have the style where you, you know, we've seen several like spectral evidence where you weave through these short stanzas. Um, little mm -hmm. couplets with the indentations. How do you decide how to structure a poem like that? Is there something in your mind that makes you f the poem feel that way? Like I'll put spectral evidence on the screen again just so people see what I'm talking about at home. But um, yeah. there's this way that there's a lot of white space and indents and short lines. Um, is there a reason you you decided to write s many of the poems that way? Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of times when I first write a poem, I usually write in you know longhand it's usually just like a paragraph, you know, like a, it, it's not in any particular form. I just get it down. And then um, as I start working on it, it, I guess a lot of it's intuitive. So for spectral evidence, you know, the whole idea of a specter and sort of that, you know, the end spectral evidence, it's sort of like, well, there is no evidence. Right. And it's, it's short on fact. And so I just wanted the poem to be really spare. Mm -hmm. Um, so sometimes the content will dictate what I do. 
Yeah. Um, but I do like white space. I feel like that works also as, um, I don't know, like it, it just creates space around the words so that you can really digest them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, there's a feeling like it, it compresses them like into diamond instead of like flowing across the yeah. page. You know, there, there's a very tight feel to the poems. Um, you mentioned a corporate job. Um, and I don't yeah. know if you want to say what that was in, but I'm curious and, and wondering if that has any impact on the way you go about writing poems. Um, I'm happy to talk about it. I um, worked for a for-profit corporation, but I worked in their nonprofit division. Mm -hmm. So I managed fundraising programs for mm -hmm. nonprofits. Um, and we mostly did that through direct mail um, and email um, fundraising. So there was, you know, I wasn't a copywriter, but it involved copy and um, reviewing and editing and that kind of thing. But, um, but that was the work that I did. Mm -hmm. Did, so did that not, have any, was it helpful for marketing your books as they come out, um, having that kind of experience? Yeah, it definitely is very helpful in terms of marketing because, mm -hmm. I, you know, 28 years I worked in that industry. And, and so I, I, did a fair amount of marketing again it's for nonprofits, but yeah mm -hmm. you, you kind of learn the ropes yeah so so what can you teach people because you know we all sort of face this as poets like we love writing we love language we love reading books and we want to make our own then we find a press finally and then pretty much these days you're on your own as far as as getting the books out in the world and making sure people actually read them um is, have, you, have you found anything that works and, and that you could pass along as, a, as advice well, I think even though, you know, social media has its ups and downs, um, especially since the pandemic, there's not a lot of other ways to reach people, right? And and I do know from my press, they have said, you know, when when their authors do an event, a reading online, or they do sell more books. So mm -hmm. it helps. I think you need to have a presence, you know, a, a good website. And then if you have your own email list um, that you can, um, you know, talk to the people that are on your email list. And again, um, you know, not be super promotional, but just talking about poetry and what's happening. And, um, and I think another thing that's really important is to promote um, other poets and writers work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and yeah, we all need to support each other. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, and tell me about, about Kevin Carey Press, because I'm, I'm not, I wasn't familiar with them before, but we've, mm -hmm. we've had a lot of poets on lately that have been published through Kevin Carey. Um, how did you end up on that press, and, and why did you choose them, or they choose you? How did, how did that work? Well, um, they have a submission period every couple of years. I had seen um, some other, I knew some other poets that were published with them. I'd seen the books, which they make really gorgeous books, um, really great quality paper, um, typesetting, everything. So I just submitted my manuscript to them um, in their reading period and, and they selected it. And I, you know, had submitted other places as well. Um, so that's really how I, I work with them. They're a nonprofit press. Um, mm -hmm. They just, a lot of attention to detail. Um, I like their philosophy, bringing lives to life. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I recommend them highly. Yeah. Well, they're definitely putting out great books. There's no doubt great about books. that. Yeah. Um, how, great how to long, work with. Yeah. Oh, that's great to hear too. Um, so how long, um, did it take, how many, how many times did you enter open reading periods and contests and things like that before, uh, before this one found a home? Um, well, her con 
signed um, actually was only submitted to Cabin Carry mm-hmm. because they they have a right of first refusal. Ah, so, okay. Yeah, yeah. So um, the first book, you know, I submitted to a fair number of open readings, and you know, it was in contests. It was a finalist, and it was a semifinal. You know, and then and then Cabin Carry took it. So mm-hmm. yeah. Well, let's hear uh, let's hear another poem. Okay, so this one is page sixty three. Um, this one's called I Hakati. She was the Greek goddess of uh, crossroads, and she ruled over night, magic, and places where three roads meet. Um, and she's often depicted as having three heads, and usually they're animal heads. And there are like four poems in the book that are um, different goddesses. This is I Hakati. Between queen, liminal sorceress, crossroads, guardian story of my life. Who are you today, my ex would taunt? More than just a Gemini, a trimorphous human form in triplicate, birth, love, death, maiden, mother, crone, moon, earth, underworld. I'll take tropicity over duplicity any day. Three heads are better, even if one has to be a dog, a bitch. Dog, 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 serpent, horse, dog, cow, boar, even if it means I am witch, that old crone at the cauldron, stirring willows, dark you, blackthorn. It took a torch, a key, a dagger to cut away a past. It took 30 years. It took all three of me. And that was um, I, Hakati. Um, one of the things that I love about the book is the turns that you make, the surprising kind of places you go in that contention that you do. And um, and one of the things, one example of that is that dog, 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 serpent, horse, dog, cow, boar line, where you, that, that recitation, which is not something that you expect. And so it hits you in a strange way. Um, how do you like, how do you give yourself permission to take turns and surprise yourself like that? Um, is there like, what is your writing process like and, and how much is just letting things go and seeing what happens? Yes, it's a combination of both. Um, I think that for me, I, I like a turn. I, I really try to, um, you know, focus on having a turn in, in every poem. I just think that's important. Mm-hmm. And um, the sound, like there's a lot of sounds like in what you read is a lot of that's intuitive for me. Mm-hmm. I, I just like my ear wants something and, you know, it's not happy till it gets it right. I may not know what that is, but I'll keep working at it till I get there. Mm-hmm. And so that usually comes from reading a lot. Are there any like poets you especially like to read? Yeah, I read a fair amount. Um, I mean, when I was, you know, younger and influenced very much by, you know, Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton, James Wright, um, Robert Bly. Um, I love Terrence Hayes, Jericho Brown, um, Diane Zeus, um, currently reading Paul Tran's um, new book. So um, and then I get, you know, I have journals that I read. So I, I read a lot of poetry and a lot online, you know, yeah. so much is available online. It's great. So, so what is there a common sort of thread or, or something that the poems that you love have in common? I mean, to read or to write yourself, is there something that that makes something a good poem? Um. Well, I I 
personally, I want to be moved when I read a poem. You know, I just I just want something to deeply affect me. Mm -hmm. And um, whether that's joy or sadness, you know, I just I just want to be moved. Um, um, and I'm, I'm open to all kinds of styles, too. However, that is achieved, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I feel like I'm still learning. So I'm really very greedy about, you know, wanting to read more all the time. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. Have you done any uh, classes or, or anything since or retreats or anything like that since the MFA? Um, well, yeah, I did bread loaf a few years ago, which was um, a good experience. And then I've done um, some poetry festivals, you know, taking part either, you know, taught some workshops myself, but also participated. So usually every, you know, year I'm doing something. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Um, well, let's hear another one. I think we have time for maybe two more. So, um, okay. Yeah. Do you have one that you want to pick? Um, or do you want me to? I have to go back and find it. Um, I, I was wondering about the, the woman climbs Statue of Liberty in protest. If you want to read that one. Um, yeah, sure. Sure. All right, let me find what page that's on. Oh, sorry, it's 41. Okay. Yeah, this is one I did, you know, wanted to include a couple of poems in the book that were more about contemporary women because, you know, I see the same kind of thing happening today in terms of women sort of being outside the norm and... and this is called Women Climb Statue of Liberty in Protest. Teresa Patricia Akumu, Guilty of Trespassing, 2018. She said, I climb to protect our nation's zero tolerance immigration policy. She said, I climb to abolish ICE. They said trespasser. They said disorderly conduct. When she sat on the skirts of Lady Liberty, we watched them climb after her. They said, get down. Our hero said, I'm not discouraged. She made her bed, and we watched and cheered and put a curse on those who wanted to arrest her for protesting, putting children into cages. Oh, yes, we witches watched her carry our truth up and over that ledge like a beautiful soothsayer, strong and lithe. Goodbye, dark ages. We climb with her. We climb with her. Yeah, that was Woman uh, Climb Statue of Liberty in protest, which a lot of people might remember that um, from 2018. And and it's an example of a different kind of poem in the book, which which brings in contemporary women in stories. And and the thing that, that I want to ask about was was how you go about um, writing a poem um, that, that makes sense politically. Because we have the Poets Respond series. You heard uh, Matt Honer's poem earlier today um that engages in the in the current contemporary politics um uh, but it's so hard to do you know it's so hard to write about things um you know in the moment that are that are happening right now so how do you how do you approach it without being like didactic and, and having a um you know kind of preaching to the choir is the is the problem that comes up a lot yeah yeah that's that's a really good point um well one thing that helps me is that you know that that poem's a sonnet so mm -hmm. again it helped me to sort of condense the material and it, and it limits, you know, you just can't go on espousing forever. Right. Mm -hmm. So you're limited to 14 lines and the rhyme scheme. Um, so that's what helped me sort of reel that one in. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. And then, and then, so um, we have prompts and you gave us a prompt for later today. Yes. Um, and, uh, 
do you, do you write often that way or what is your writing process like like do you wait for inspiration or do you say i want to write today i'm going to start diving into something i'll i'll prompt myself and, and i'll make a poem happen no matter what um how do you how do you approach the blank page which is often very intimidating all that white space um what do you yeah, do when you yeah. encounter that um i don't use prompts a lot i have found that they're very really successful for me um but yeah, I know that blank page. We we often some with some of my friends sometimes we'll do like the month of April, we're gonna write a poem a day. Mm-hmm. Or every other month I do this thing called the cleanse, where for the first seven days of the month you write a poem. Hmm. And yeah, it's you begin to just look, I think it makes you be very observant. So and pay attention. Which means when I go for a walk my walk in the morning, I'm thinking about I'm gonna write a poem today. And and just letting, you know, just being observant of whatever there is. And and I think what, you know, I tend to do is say, just write a line, you know, if you get anything down today. Um, and I don't write every day, but mm-hmm. it's during those periods where we're focused on it, it's get something down on paper. So usually I find that there is something, if either it's something I read or it's something happening in my life or some memory, it will trigger a poem. Mm-hmm. But they're not always good, you know. Yeah, they're and, not always. Good. And when you say trigger a poem, um, what what is the trigger? Like, what happens that you know is a poem? Do you get a line to start with, or an idea that you want to pursue? Like, do you know where a poem's going to go um, before you start writing, or uh, what is no. what is the trigger? Like, what's the beginning of a poem for you? I don't know where it's going to go. It could be like, uh, for example, I took a hike with my daughter recently this oxbow lake place we went and I didn't know what an oxbow was. Mm -hmm. So I looked up what's an oxbow and up writing a poem about an oxbow when in using it as a metaphor. But, you know, when I started writing this poem, I had no idea where it was going to go, which I think is good. I, I, I don't think in a way I want to know because I always learn something when, when I write a poem. Yeah. Or I should learn something, you know, Mm -hmm. surprise myself. Yeah, that that whole no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. I think that always applies really strongly. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah. So so since you this book came out, um, when did it come out? It was last year, I think. Um, it was about a year ago. Yeah, yeah. last October. Yep. Yeah, timed maybe for Halloween. Um, like I like our show slightly is. Um, you know, when I saw you yeah. had a poem, you know, book based on witches. Yeah. I was like, well, this is a good time of year for that. Um, have you been since since doing all the research and, and and making the book and forming your thoughts about it? Have you gone back to Salem Village and do you have a different way of looking at it now that you've done the research and written all these poems about it? Yeah, I actually was just so I, I moved to the Seattle area mm-hmm. a year about a year a little over a year ago. I just was back in in Salem oh, and wow. I was able I was able to do a reading there with uh-huh. a bunch of, with Jan O'Neill who you recently had on yeah. and, and a bunch of other friends and did a reading in Salem from the book, which was really exciting for me. Um, so I mean, I think I was still living there when I was writing the book. So um, yeah, Salem will never be the same to me. You know, there's as it was uh, before I had this book, before I started writing these poems. Yeah, yeah, um, but but how so? Like what? what's different? Well, I mean, I like to remind people, I usually do a couple of posts every October, like there were never any witches in Salem. Yeah. You know, this is the thing, there were no witches there. This is, um, I mean, it kind of makes me sad to see what 
what goes on in Salem and, you know, it's fun, but then in the, you know, in my heart, I think these were people that were murdered and you think of the horror that they went through and that their families went through. So it's tragic to me. Yeah. And so now I mean, when I go there, I think about that. Yeah. And so it's like a, like a Holocaust museum having a gift shop or something, you know, I mean, those people exactly. died and there was that much tragedy and then we make it like a fun thing, which is, it's, it is fun, <laughs> but it's not, it's right. not a, it doesn't honor the people that went through that experience. No. Uh, one thing I was wondering too that I don't know is, is how did it end? How did the Salem witch trials end? Was there a, somebody who spoke up and said, hey, this is nonsense? Like if, if it's this social contagion that spreads throughout the entire population, more and more people get convinced of this belief that, um, that the witches are real and all that stuff. How does that finally fizzle out? Like, like was there a, a clear reason why it ended when it did, do you know? I don't know the answer to that. Mm -hmm. I, I, I really don't. I mean, there was a, a point where they didn't allow spectral evidence anymore, mm -hmm. you know, that, um, but it really was just a few months. Yeah. You know, it, it really, you know, I think the first, um, I think June something, the first executions they were done by September. So it really was a, it wasn't a long period of time where those executions were taking place, but yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting to see who, you know, it must have been like a certain people or a number of people who came to the realization that this was not something that we should be doing and, and you know, not not allowing that evidence. Um, it might be interesting to explore that because that's something I've never seen. Um, you know, I've, I've watched several movies and, and, um, and read a few books, um, and I've never heard anybody really talk about like how it came to an end. It's all how it began and then the height yeah. of how awful it was. Um, but never somebody must have stood up to the the sort of the mob and and said no this is not how we should be behaving and look at what we're doing to ourselves and it's only going to get worse and worse until we stop you know yeah um, yeah I'm not I'm not an expert on that at all <laughs> yeah um, no thank God it stopped though right yeah for sure I mean I mean at some point it has to because you run out of of witches or <laughs> people to accuse I mean, of when, that. and when you look in history I mean in, in Europe and other, I mean, other places, I mean, they were burning witches for, I mean, it's something that's happened throughout history. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, well, let's read one last poem. Um, what do you want to close out with? Oh gosh, that's a tough one. Um, all right. Well, I could close out with kind of a fun one. Yeah. This is, um, this is on page 58. So this is a little triolet and it's, um, actually built from um, tweets related to um, Taylor Swift concert. <laughs> Who just Taylor dropped Swift. her new album, by the way. Yes, which, well, I know. My daughter time. just has on a loop right now. But <laughs> uh, Taylor Swift makes Forbes' most powerful women list. A whole witch ritual, I love you, Taylor A. Swift. Shake off the haters, here's to savvy broomsticks, red lipstick. She's giving me major scarlet witch vibes and I am here for it. A whole witch ritual, I love you, Taylor A. Swift. I wanted to hug her when she started pointing to herself, raised a fist. They're burning all the witches, even if you aren't one. Here's to witch grit. A whole witch ritual, I love you, Taylor A. Swift. Shake off the haters, here's to savvy broomsticks, red lipstick. Yeah. And that was Taylor Swift makes Forbes most powerful woman list. Um, and so since writing this book, one last question, um, yeah. since writing this book, do, do you find yourself, I mean, obviously as you were writing it, you were, you were drawn to 
times people use the, the phrase witch and call people witch in that casual way that we do sometimes. Um, are you still have a heightened awareness of witchery or the use of that, that epithet um, since you published the book? Is it something that's present in your conscious a lot more? And, and do you see it a lot more, you think, than you used to? Well, I've kind of moved, um, yes, but it's sort of with a different context. So I've sort of moved on into um, exploring, um, you know, often women of a certain age are called crones, witches. They're depicted in fairy tales as, you know, hags, uh, the evil stepmother. And so that use of witch is a little bit more what I've been focused on in some Mm -hmm. of the writing I've been doing recently. Uh, okay. Yeah. So I was, that's what I was going to ask too, is what, what do you have up next? Um, I'm working on a, another manuscript, which is sort of, it's not really a project book like my other two. It's more, um, it's more personal, I would say, mm-hmm. but again, it's exploring, um, the idea of, um, sort of the idea of, um, the difference between what, society expects a woman to be and what she is and in that difference creates monsters hmm. Interesting. Monsters. so monsters like shame and guilt and, and things like that so that's kind of where i'm what i'm working on now yeah that that's very interesting do you have a working title um a working title is called my galaxy of monsters oh interesting yeah mm-hmm. very cool well we'll have to look forward to that um, thanks, Cindy, for meeting guests today. It's been great talking to you and, and sharing this really wonderful book. Hope everybody picks up a copy, um, especially this time of year. It's interesting, but it's a it's a wonderful book um, of really really condensed, um, strong, powerful imagery um, and, and some formal poetry too. So it's really a pleasure to read. Um, I always love a book with a with a theme and something it's about that sticks in your memory. Um, so thanks for writing it and sharing it with us today. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest, Cindy. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been really fun. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. Bye bye. It was Cindy Veach, of course. Uh, her book is Her Kind. You can find more of Cindy Veach's work at her website, which is conveniently and easy enough, cindyveach.com. That's Cindy with a, with a C, C-I-N-D-Y-V-E-A-C-H.com. So check out her website. Now we're going to take a quick break, and uh, I will be back with uh, Open Lines. So if you would like to share a poem, I will deploy the uh, Zoom link for anybody who would like to share. Only go there if you'd like to share a poem. Before you do, though... Um, go here, email your poems to open mic, that's open M-I-C at rattle.com um, email your poem there um, and maybe we'll have time for two poems each this week, I don't think it's a very long I think we have time, so if you like to share two that's fine too, but you can send poems about current events, you can send poems for last week's prompt uh, last week's prompt was um, write a poem about a landmark in your area, so you can feel free to write, um, share poems about that prompt and we'll learn about where you live um, also, share poems about current events, anything you published recently you'd like to share, anything at all. It's open lines. I'll deploy the Zoom links in just a second and be right back with them. So sit tight, and uh, if you just want to listen, stay right where you are. Okay, bye. And we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. Um, like I mentioned, the prompt for this week was to write a poem about a landmark in your area. And it's been a busy, very busy week for me here. So I um, haven't haven't written a poem this week i know exactly what i'm going to write about so i will write about that next week and maybe share two poems next week um but let's go um to some open micers and let's go to richard westheimer first hey dick how you doing good caught me off guard i thought you were going to read a poem maybe read a megan poem (laughs) well it's a pretty quick uh 
we'll we'll, uh, we'll do poems later next week. Um, I, I know exactly what I want to write about. Uh, there's a very fun landmark in our town, but uh, I just didn't get a chance to do it. Uh, but yeah, what did you get to write about this week, Dick? Um, let's see. I sent you one uh, just open mic just a moment ago called This is the Theory of Everything, which ah. was actually a poet's respond poem. Um, and then I also had a PR poem, uh, The Kind of Silence Heard When Musicians Are Murdered. So if we can read two. Yeah, I think we have time to do. It's a, you know, I didn't have poems and, and it was a, Cindy's poems were short. So um, I think we have time for sure. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I'll do, uh, this is the theory of everything. Okay. Let me pull it up. This is the theory of everything. And, and do you want to explain what it's about? Um, so there's a sort of a new, you know, now familiar, right, image of the pillars of creation from the web telescope. We're so used to these nearly, oh gosh, I don't know, pornographic almost, you know, they're so... They are amazing. They really are. They're, they're even my, my daughter was talking about them too. Like she, uh, on a hike yesterday, she was going on about, and I realized that she was talking about those pictures. So they've penetrated like school already too, which is really cool to know. And And these were, you know, more... You know more like like we we've had enough of them star nurseries you know mm -hmm. places uh, this is a um a nebula that's uh near the center of our own galaxy about yeah. six thousand years away and it's a star nursery where a lot of create um it's called uh, pillars of creation but it also has been dubbed the pillars of destruction because you know star creation is a very let's just say um uh it's an Ouroboros, cosmic Ouroboros with, you know, stars eating each other yeah. and eating mm -hmm. themselves and, yeah. and destroying the gas clouds that made them. And that's uh, pretty crazy. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so um, this is the theory of everything. After Webb Telescope's Pillars of Creation uh, near-infrared camera image. One... Out my window, I see the cherry tree, leaves stirred by something unseen. If I were outside, I'd call it breeze. But here, behind glass, that's only one theory. Another? Maybe the matter between the stars hears me gasp when I peer at the night sky through the city lights, see the pillars of creation the web image that appears as a field of dust, of death, of stars born of gravity, a diaphanous stellar nursery. Maybe it knows the fear some mortals have of shadows. There's a whisper in my ear that says, you are not alone. There is more here, more in the universe than you can know, not merely light, but creation as invisible as breeze, as fleeting as autumn leaves, and yet so much like leaves, the way their falling reveals the sky beyond the sky concealed in that living green season, how we once believed these tumbling things were tree, and now they become mold and duff and soil and rot, and eventually again, tree like stars our ash our dust our galaxies our dust our ash our me two the pillars of creation so much more and less than me 
Yeah, great poem, Dick. Thanks so much for sharing that. It uh, makes me think. I mean, it could be a hyphen. Um, I don't know if you've seen. Do you remember? Um, 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 Roberta Beery is the hyphen editor for Modern Modern Poetry, and she writes hyphen that way with actual line break poems and then a, a haiku at the end. So that's pretty cool. Um, yeah. pretty cool I was, I was in, entrained by all of these theory and scene and me and appears that sort of like rhythm of those kinds. But mm-hmm. I'll, I'll take a look at Roberta's. I have, I have her book because she was interviewed with you and loved it. And she's coming to Cincinnati. Next oh, is year. she? Oh, that's great. So she's back. She's in, she was in Ireland for a long time. I well, she's back. in Ireland, but the uh, National Haiku Association Conference is going to be uh-huh. here in Cincinnati. Oh, very cool. Are you going to go? I think so. Uh-huh. Um, I've been involved with, uh, well, the guy whose um, haiku you read last week, um, oh gosh, I keep forgetting his name. He's part of our little haiku group now, mm-hmm. so he's, he's helping bring it here. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Yeah. I love the haiku community. It's just one of the best in poetry, I would say. So I, I recommend going. They're a lot of, they have fun time and love what they do. Yeah, I think I will. Um, and the other one is um, the kind of silence heard when musicians are murdered. And I'll just read the epic, uh, you know, the, the, I don't know what you call this when a poem is for somebody, but uh, it explains the conditions. For Yuri Kurpatenko, murdered by Russian authorities for refusing to conduct a concert in occupied Kherson. What if the whole idea is wrong? What if music played at the point of a gun could resurrect the dead? What if there really are 10 dimensions of space and time? What if one of those dimensions were notes on a symphony score that one by one disappeared, but only when played perfectly? A cantata could become silence the more it is performed. The conductor's baton sweeping arcs outlining the shape of empty space so that the music can rise into it like a swarm of bees, like a murmuration of note-shaped starlings? And what if the violinists bowed on infinite strings, thumbed light into the night sky, while at the same time the kettle drums' mallets strike the stretched skin of the one creature not named by Adam? And what if the conductor himself bound at the wrists by a burning rope is dragged off by the authorities for playing so perfectly, so perfectly that the disbelievers, the tyrants, the martial marchers all strut to the rhythm of their own oblivion. And what if the strutters can never know the kind of quiet that depends on autumn leaves falling? The quiet that breaks hearts, the quiet that is more dangerous than nothing, the silence that's heard by every one of us who sat quiet among friends, mourned the ones murdered for beauty, who we'd welcome to fill their bellies with fire, then sing courage hymns to the poets and painters, hope to the storytellers, even as one of their own lies on the floor at his home in a surprising pool of blood, red moonlight. Yeah, that was the, the kind of silence heard when musicians are murdered. Uh, great poem, as always, Dick. Thanks so much for sharing both of those. They're just good stuff. And and just a note on that one, it just sort of made me wonder, you know, you hear about poets, you know, in tyrannical regimes being the first ones who are rounded up. 
but it's probably not all the poets. It's the ones who are as courageous as this conductor. Yeah. You know? mm -hmm. And it's sort of what hearing about his made me wonder, you know, we think about courage in writing a poem, the courage in the process of, you know, being brave enough to let the unconscious come out. But what about the courage that it takes in this kind of environment? And I, I don't know. You know, mm -hmm. I don't know how it translates. I would yeah. hope I'd be one of the ones for whom it translated. Yeah, yeah, we definitely all do. And then, and then, who knows when, when put to the fire like that, as as so many people throughout history have been. Um, you know, you learn your your own <laughs> about yourself in those situations. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Dick. It's always a pleasure. I'm glad yeah, you could join you us. Can. Yeah. Thank take care. So Bye. Bye. There's Dick Westheimer with two poems, and let's go to let's go to uh, Joe Nolan, who hasn't been on in a while. Hey, Joe. Hey, how, you, how doing? are you? Yeah, great to see you. Nice to be here. So I've got two short ones for fall. These are both fall-oriented poems. Uh, the first one is Forever Leaves of Brown. Yeah, go ahead. Is there anything you want to say about them or just jump right in? I'll just jump right in. They're just uh, poems for the season of fall. Okay, great. Forever Leaves of Brown. Trees may bear brown leaves throughout the winter. Some leaves never blow away. They cling from year to year as though affixed. Maybe they are worry mixed with fear, anger, and resentment, and cannot be let go, no matter how hard the wind may blow. Reserving aging places where otherwise fresh green buds would grow. Very nice. Next one is Indian Summer. Your place looked lovely in the summer when rain washed down the tree leaves near, when the heat was just insane and no one ever wandered down the street in pouring rain. But I loved sweet September, Indian summer, warm and plain when it seldom, if ever, rained, and grass went brown from the farmer's fields all the way into town. Oh, very Thank nice. You. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing both those, uh, Joseph. And, and always, as, as always, love the way you read. It's almost half singing. I love hearing it. Thanks so much for sharing that. Thanks, Tim. Bye-bye now. Yep, take care. That was uh, Joseph Nolan with Indian Summer and Forever Leaves of Brown. Um, let's go to Bev Wendell Atherstone next. Hi. Hey, Bev. How you doing? Great. What a what a beautiful time of year this fall. It really is. Yeah, it's it's definitely fall here now. The cold winds have come in. The leaves are blowing across the streets. It uh, it definitely Halloween. You know, Halloween's right yeah. around the corner. And uh, yeah, we, I like the feeling, you know, the, the fall feeling when the summer's finally over. Don't have to worry about fires anymore, either, which is nice. We just had our first snowfall. Oh, you did. Where is it that you in are? Al I can't remember now. Al Alberta. Oh, Alberta. that's right. Yeah. Uh -huh. So, um, yeah. So, yeah. Well, welcome to winter, I guess, too. <laughs> yes, finally. We were having days in the, uh, I guess it would be the 70s Fahrenheit in the in the 20s celsius and it was just like summer mm -hmm. right up right up till friday 
Yeah. I'm going to read a, just one poem. Okay. And it was accepted. Um, it was published by Spillwords uh, yesterday. Oh, no, today. Sorry, ah, today. Congratulations. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. And uh, they had a contest called the 13 Days of of Halloween. Mm-hmm. And they received so many um, poems that they decided not just to have the 13 Days of Halloween, but also another 13. So mine was in the second tier. <laughs> <laughs> so it was published today. And mine is called uh, A Goblin's View. Excellent. We are the ghosts and goblins who around your brain still creep. We manifest in daylight as well as while you sleep. With eyeballs sorely bloodshot and fingers lank and sleek, we hover as you shudder and through the shadows peek. Your shrink says we aren't real, but how would they ever know when it takes imagination to see our viridescent glow? We hide among your feelings. In memories, we burst full and bob along the ceiling, wafting pale as an old skull. Now you might want to query what makes us do this ill. Why must we frighten people? Why do we seek this thrill? Once we were fully bodied and lived upon this earth like other happy children, We giggled in our mirth, but our parents feared the evil of those trick-or-treating ways and forbade us wearing costumes of ghouls and ghosts always. So now we spend eternity scaring kindly human folk because we just pined for outfits like Batman with his cloak. Oh, Excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that, Bev. And that's actually going to be a perfect poem for next week too because we're uh gonna have a spooky poem halloween episode so um so maybe we've got some oh more yeah of like course that. monday yeah yeah <laughs> next monday's halloween we're gonna do it on sunday though i was gonna say it at the end but that's gonna be the prompt next week is to write some kind of spooky halloween type creepy poem and then uh the show's actually be on sunday so um we, oh. have a, we have a poet who has um you know good creepy mythological story poems we'll we'll reveal that in a little bit but uh, that's going to be the show for next week. So if you have any more like that, that'd be perfect. If not, a great preview of what we'll do on the open lines next week. Thanks, Bev. <laughs> and will it be the same time? It's going to be the same time. Yep, Sunday, 8 p.m. Eastern. Yeah, just a day earlier so that you can you know do your trick-or-treating and all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Excellent. Yeah, take care, Bev. Always a pleasure to see you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Yeah, there's Bev uh, Wendell Atherstone. Um, the title I have here is Goblins Are S- Goblins Scary Reasons. Um, let's go to, let's go to, um, Janthi Rangan next. Hey, Janthi, can you come and unmute? Can you... Unmute. There you go. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Good to see you. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining again. Good to again. see you too. Uh, good to be here. Yeah. So um, what do you have for us today? Um, one second. Let me just get that. Yeah. This is called the Alice in Wonderland wonderland experience excellent um this is uh, based on the landmark prompt so um i lived in a landmark fort fort william in kolkata where the english had their base during their reign 
with barracks built like colossal colosseums um, straightened out for offices and residences, boundary drawn by gates and entrances, their safety measured in the girth of iron ingress of sturdiness that remain mostly closed, but with a mini built-in trap door open like modern blenders for add-ins for movement of occupants, but otherwise they hid the bustle of the anthills well, moats running with muddy wrinkles, but without crocodiles and the steep slopes where we as teens slid down for a dare. Tunnels which still had stray casings and bullet fragments, sunlight cutting the heart hammering, thuck, thuck, dark in there with slant patches and a lone electric wire hanging for spook effect, I think. We, the army brats, grew up exploring barbed wires and various signs to keep out, out of danger, where ruminous stood contrast to the space deprivation of civilians of the New Yorkish city, the drainage uh, pipeways boasting of an interim so big no flood could fill, rife with the feel of an escape room that holds people captive and wants them to break through the locks at the same time. I brought in a schoolmate for a play date through Watergate. The military police checked in my identity and let us in, adding many firsts to my friend's experience, the vastness of open yesteryears, the decorations of cannonballs and guns, history's architecture of tall ceilings and skylights, cinema hall with noisy hum of film projectors and a discipline all too visible. I took my classmate to the nameplate of Viceroy um, Lord Robert Clive and impressed her with military might only for her to comment, God, this has suffocation of a crummy jail. <laughs> Well, well, I don't know if I want the Alice in Wonderland experience after that, but um, wonderfully described. Thanks so much for sharing that, Jayanti. Thank you. Yep. Take care. You too. Yeah. That was uh, Jayanti Rangan with uh, the Alice in Wonderland experience. Um, let's go to a first-time caller now. Um, Grace um, Bialucky is here. Hey there. Hey, Grace. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having this. This is really great. Um, yeah, I just where, wanted to... where are you calling from? I'm calling from New York. Excellent. Yeah. Um, so what do you have that you'd like to share? Yeah, I just wanted to read a poem I wrote for Poets Respond. I really appreciate the fact that you organize that. I think it's a great way of incorporating news with poetry and some things that we might feel strongly with. Um, so, yeah, I'm just going to dive right in. It's a short little one. Excellent. And do you want to explain what it's about first or just let it go? I'm, I'm just going to let it okay, run. Okay, let's hear it. Okay, let's hear it. All my heroes are dead or canceled. 
I'm just a white girl who's loved Kanye since I knew his name. Yay, Yeezy, Mr. West, Mr. Fresh. Cruising to college dropout and dealing to get by before late registration, graduation, all the money promises we made together. Dear Kanye, I'm sorry you're bipolar and your mother passed from the plastic surgery you paid for. I'm sorry Kim called it and all the other big names are walking. I'm sorry even I need to take a break. I'll pray for you not to get shot or electroshocked. Never explicitly asking God, but trying to believe in this world while I cry to your auto-tune crooning. Hello, my only one. Remember who you are. No, you're not perfect, but you're not your mistakes. Excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that. All my heroes are dead or canceled. Um, about Kanye West and what's going on with him now, which I don't know a whole lot about, but there's a lot in that poem. Um, yeah, thanks for sharing that with us. It's great. Plus about him specifically, it was inspired by him specifically, but it was a little bit more about the idea of just standing, offering people support in any way that we can rather mm. than uh, turning our back and kind of like setting a hard no, which I feel like our society has an increasing tendency to do. Yeah, it's a performative no, too, which is the thing that bothers me. It's like, let me proclaim how awful this was so I'm not touched by it, which is just terrible, especially, mm -hmm. um, you know, I used to be a group home counselor um, for mentally ill adults and, and just seeing what, you know, people go through with mental illnesses and, and Connie clearly suffering from yeah. from, from something. I, I don't know if it's bipolar disorder. Is it, is it, is it known? Is that di his diagnosis or is that just speculated? Yeah, that that's the most public diagnosis. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The other stuff as well. Um, yeah, but for yeah. Sure. Yeah, but everybody's going through through stuff and, and trying to make. Yeah. Yeah, well, Thank thanks you. so much for sharing that. Really appreciate it and hope you can come on again. Absolutely. I'd love yep. to. Okay, bye. Um, yeah, that was. Um, second. That was a Grace uh, Be Lucky with All My Heroes Are Dead or Canceled. Thanks for sharing that, Grace. Next up, we are going to go to uh, Mike Bales. Good evening. Hey, Mike. How are you doing tonight? Pretty good. Uh, you mentioned two poems I ran and got a my last book, and I can read a poem from that. Yeah, um, go ahead. Please do. The I, revive, I said two versions of the prompt poem. Mm -hmm. This would be from the most recent one that I revised it a little bit even after that. Gotcha. Okay. So there'll be some... And I'm not doing the last stanza because I figure it's better without it. Um, there's a bridge that went up. It's the nicest bridge I've driven across to go to cross Mississippi. Mm -hmm. A new I-74 bridge and the old one was problems. I have bad memories of the old bridge. Uh, like a car dying on in the middle of the night. And oh, that's no good. Like dying and the flashers wouldn't even work. Oh, or wow. time. Um, I slid off a trailer and smashed the rear window of my car i was lucky i wasn't killed that it did come through the front of the car oh wow wow um it, i never heard of anything like that happening but the new bridge is just wonderful uh free from traffic jams three lanes going each way um and this is called walking the eastbound span of the new i-74 bridge the sun shines on the east span and we walk across it the day before it opens as traffic on the other span rushes to the west. Two new graceful arches rise from ground in concrete beams. The Quad Cities dreams this glorious bridge holds promise for all. The governors of Iowa and Illinois 
and mayors of the cities proclaim progress that will change our lives. Now with three through lanes and two shoulders on either side, the new spans promise to avoid traffic jams of the past, while the aging green frame next to it is closed. A crowd of us walk, talk, and families pause to take selfies of each other, celebrating a new day. A pause can reveal visions of currents of the Mississippi, always in conversation with those who live at its shore. Two inspiring arches angle toward each other to, to the keystone where they meet, and the sun shines through a clear, glorious sky. Excellent. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that, Mike. And so glad they got a better bridge there, because that sounded like well, a that, that sounded like a death trap. <laughs> you're awesome. I'll 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 alter my routes so I can drive across them. <laughs> Excellent. So, yeah. And the next one is from my book Second Hope that came out in June. Uh-huh. It's well, it's three parts. Uh, it, some one part is mixed genre, one part is a collection of short stories, and the third part's poems. Mm-hmm. This again goes back to my flagger days when another flagger and I were working an assignment in Minnesota. Then we had to go to an assignment at Wisconsin Dells and going through the assignment, we went through these construction zones in Rochester where the Mayo Clinic is Mm -hmm. and also where a cousin of mine's lived for a long time. So this poem's called A Call for Lesser Miracles. Rochester, the city of wonders, Hospital rise, hospitals rise, specialists called for infinite cures as roads are torn, detours marked. New ways are found as another and I pass. We are highway flaggers on the way to our assignments, lives to be held in our hands. Roads are mended, workers made of flesh and bone cutting concrete, passages to be sutured and, and sewn, but the prairie is lost. The sun veiled in in dust passes late afternoon without a whisper on our way to the interstate paved in gold. Memories stir my cousin in town and his graceful wife. I can't call them now. Harvests gathered leave cornfields once gold bare, defining a time of passage. Stone crosses line a hill shadowing years as a grieving land must learn to grow again. Excellent. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that too, Mike. Always a pleasure talking to you and, and hearing your poem. Oh, oh, thanks. It's always a good time being yep. here. Yep, take care. Okay, thanks. Yep, bye, Mike. There's Mike Bales with two poems. Let's go to Sharon Ferrante next. you? Yeah, good evening, Sharon. How are you doing tonight? Hi. Oh, I love the interview with Cindy. I was very touched. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, it's both a really of... wonderful book. I, I re- definitely recommend it if you have any I... interest in the, in the witch trials and, and, and the oh, yeah. topic of I feminism really... in general, too. <laughs> I yeah. want the book. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, great. <laughs> yeah, I was very touched. Um, I have a prompt poem. Ah, oh, excellent. Yeah. Um, we have lots of landmarks here. I mean, I have the... Where is it the, that you are the, again? In Daytona Beach, Florida. Oh, that's right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, just 10 minutes from us is the internet, the Daytona International Speedway. Mm-hmm. We, we have the beach, of course, at 15 minutes away. But to the east, about an hour, we have the Kennedy Space Center. Oh, yeah. And right from our porch, we can watch 
the rocket launch. Oh, I'm so jealous. I would so love cool. to do that. Yeah. It, it is so cool. We check and see what time they're coming on. So we know we're going to get to see it, you know, and I got a lot of cool photos and stuff. Well, if I'm ever, in, yeah, South, it, if I'm ever in South Florida, I'll stop so by cool. <laughs> for a launch. It, yeah. It is so cool. But a couple of months ago, I wrote a few poems about it. So this is not a poem I just wrote right now. I wrote a few mm -hmm. a couple of months ago about it. And I decided, you know me, I'm going to read the silly one. <laughs> Sounds good. It's spacey. Okay. How about that? It's spacey, a spacey one. poem. Okay. Perfect. We're yeah. going to space. Yeah. <laughs> I know when it's time to add myself to some constellation, have some cosmic fun. I stop at Draco, pet a dragon, then knock on an elven door, walk on starlight, meet a king on Orion's belt, have lunch on the red planet, hot enough to cook green eggs and ham. Enough frivolity for now. I must head back to my other world, but I never shake out all the stars from my clothes. Oh, that's great as always. Thanks so much for sharing that. Sharon, I love your... Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I love your short <laughs> style. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was fun. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Right, take care. Talk to you soon. That was Sharon Ferrante with um, I Know When It's Time. Um, next up, let's go to uh, Carla Schwartz. Hey, Carla, how you doing? I, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> and um, and what a great night of poetry, as always. Um, and I'm going to, I sent you two poems. Uh -huh. uh, the, one of them is shorter than the other. That's the second one. I'm going to read the first one that I sent you first, which is Turntable Park. This is a poem that appears in my new book, which is called Signs of Marriage. And Turntable Park is a park in San Bortonville, New Hampshire, mm -hmm. uh, not far from Lake Winnipesaukee. And it's called that because at the end of the, the in this park, there's a turntable, which is like a where the trains get to, to be used oh, to get to be yeah. turned around. Mm -hmm. But there's a it's a bike path that goes there, and uh, that's what this poem is about: a traveling to the bike path. And there's a bunch of other landmarks along the way since I have to get there. Yeah, very <clears> cool. Turntable Park. To return home, we go by kayak. The lake this night, not calm, but stirred up. Before leaving the dock, I turn on the light at the head of my boat. For safety, I think. But underway, it blinds me. Alone in my kayak, ahead of you. Blinded in the white darkness, I'm afraid a wave might drive my boat into a rock. When you catch up, you switch off my light in a frenzied, blown-about moment when we both almost crash into the shore, but then we master the fetch and head south toward our cove. Almost home, we look up at the moon and agree how lovely it is on this lake. This, this day could have been like any other, except I said bike path. So kayaks, so what the wind, the rain, the waves... So cars, so bikes, stone dust, and autumn leaves fringing the lakeside trail we must follow to its finish, Turntable Park. Because how could you stop short of a park named for the mechanism that turns trains around, 
a backtracking that anyone might hope for. Oh, that was great. That really makes me want to go to uh, Turntable Park. I'd love to go there and see that. Yeah, thanks Thank for sharing. Thank you. Thank you. And then this next poem I sent you is, um, I just took a picture of it because I couldn't, um, I couldn't uh, get it soon enough. I, I self-published a book in 2004, I believe, or the second printing of it was 2004. Uh-huh. And I illustrated all the poems in the book. And the poems were inspired by the Lorax by Dr. Seuss. And so they all have kind of a rhyming scheme. But this poem, <clears throat> the reason I'm reading it is, is also I'm prompted to read it by the prompt. Uh, because uh, this poem is actually a recipe, uh, a directive, mm-hmm. and it's called How to Photo Document Your Neighborhood. Before, if ever, you live in a place, when you move to the groove and give in a place, open your eyes and take in the taste of your surroundings. Notice what you distinguish with your naked face. Snap, pop, photograph tops of buildings, bridges, brick walls, defaced windows. Make yourself a baseline from which all that is new becomes familiar. In five years' time, repeat the exercise. Snap, pop, photograph anew, whatever fresh visions claim you. Excellent. Thanks. Love the rhyme in there, as always. Thanks so much for sharing that, Carla. And uh, for I, those just uh, watching, there's some, some um, icon graphics to go along with it. There's a, a cat, and there's a camera here. Cat on every page in this book, by the way. Ah, cat <laughs> on every page. Okay, very cool. Well, yeah. thanks so much for sharing that, Carla. It, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. Take care. Have a good night. Good night. Carla Schwartz with uh, two poems. And now let's go to uh, Brent Stauffer. Hey, Jim. Hey, Brent. How are you doing tonight? Uh, uh, real good. I, I, I somehow had a feeling you might pick me next. Uh-huh. Because I was the last one. <laughs> because you're the last one. Exactly. <laughs> I, 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 I tried to, to jump on early, um, but uh, my earbuds said that they were dying. Oh, So yeah. I had to get off and just watch on YouTube while my earbuds uh recharge yeah gotcha all right well it's so great now. to see you great to have you it's worth the wait for sure <laughs> well we'll see <laughs> <laughs> it always is um, so what do you got for us i i really uh, i really enjoyed the interview tonight uh it's a compelling topic and compelling yeah, poems too. definitely is yeah with a lot of relevance today in a lot of ways yeah yeah witch hunts everywhere right yeah, they're everywhere like no matter who you know everyone's doing them <laughs> it's like the, the time yeah. And if they're and if they're not, they're claiming them. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this landmark is not from around here, but from where I grew up, which is in Birmingham, and it's a dive bar that um, is yet still qualifies as a landmark. Like it's somewhere that I would take people mm-hmm. when they would come to visit Birmingham. I would say, well, if you want the entire Birmingham experience, you need to go to this place, which was. Um, it still exists, has has been around for, I think, close to 40 years now. And one of the few places in Birmingham that supports local music. Mm-hmm. And uh, so anyway, that's what it's about. Uh, it's called The Nick. When I think of you, you're filled with smoke and noise, such noise, glorious and awful music. 
your black stacks of speakers would jumpstart the bones until we were all dancing and tossing our bodies around up the hill from the projects down the street from the hospital just a windowless box under the overpass until you let the freaks in to get their freak on Sun Ra and his orchestra Bella Fleck Henry Rollins Alex Chilton Jane's Addiction and almost every band I've ever been in Birmingham's Rough Jewel shining through the muck even after Carrie bled to death in your parking lot we loved you but this poem isn't about that I said this poem isn't about that when I think of you you're filled with smoke Oh, very touching poem. And talk about turns. We were talking about turns before, and that that was surprising. Um, great stuff. Thanks, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I thought of that. It surprised me. <laughs> All right, thank you. Yeah, thanks, well, Tim. It both it both made me want to go there at first, and then and then it was very moving. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Brent. You're welcome. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it was Brent Stoffer with the Nick. And uh, let's see what we have for. That's the end for for Zoom. I'm gonna shut down the Zoom. And um, we have a few more people who couldn't make it right now, but um, let's go with this. This is, uh, so Jerry Stephenson sent this poem, and he's not here at the moment, or maybe can't connect. I saw him on the chat, but we'll share this poem. This was his, um, I wonder if we should show it before or after. Let's read the poem first, then we'll show a picture. How about that? So here's Jerry Stephenson's poem. Um, um, Hope, let's see. Yeah. I'll send a picture. Okay, here we go. So this is Our Landmark Has a Watermark. And this is Jerry Stephenson's poem. Let's read it for you right now. Um, there we go. Our Landmark Has a Watermark. Entrance Island floats, or seems to, 2,737 feet north of Gabriola Island. Established in 1875, soaring 46 feet over the Salish Sea. Has numerous outbuildings, homes, to demise staffing from days past. It offers lighthouse keeping in earnest, unlike a let, with a proper lighthouse keeper, weighty matter for this day and age. Hue and cry when government tried to dehumanize the personage like days forward try. Why our last crew, their FB wonders, keeping islanders informed, 4,200 souls, how could seas sail, postcards adored, to be sent afar, all to the sea lion's roar. Great ending there, all to the sea lion's roar. Thanks for sharing that, Jerry. That was our landmark has a watermark. And here is the picture that Jerry sent. Um, so you can see this. This is the, the lighthouse that he was talking about. From postcard, he says. So beautiful, beautiful uh, lighthouse there on an island. Thanks for sharing that, Jerry. That was good stuff, as it always is. And um, also very late at night tonight um, in, in, uh, is uh, uh, Potter O'Donoghue, of course. Um, and what does he have for us? Yeah, so here we go. So we can't manage the time slot, but wants to share these. The first is a landmark, while statue near where I used to live in England. The second is a now-demolished building that I loved in a dystopian way, a terrible beauty, as it were. So uh, here's um, the two poems by Potter O'Donohue, and there's a photo with this one. And here, this is a great photo. So check that out. That is the photo he included, and then this is the poem. Um, well, look at me now. 
Don't turn your eyes away, they're so blue, so green. So you no longer love me. Well, that's okay. I don't either. I never did. What a fucked up surprise it is to still be alive. I wish I had been special, or halfway normal. I wish I'd been better, that the bubble mask had enough air holes to fully breathe freely. Sometimes I think that I'll never get all the thorns out from my skin until it's too late, and who, if not you, will look at me then? That is the first poem from Potter Donahue. Great poem, Potter. I love that. And then here's the second photo. This looks like, um, let's see. We'll see what it is. It's a, it's a old industrial building with a big smokestack type thing. Uh, let's see. Let's see what the poem is about. Um, sepulcher or sepulcher. Uh, too big for that, though you hold my dread, thoughts and dreams, my loved. They nibble away at you now, like yellow rats, these hydraulic, beak-toothed, modern-day dinosaurs, hungry for change, even in this forsaken, starved place. You were sanctuary? Hardly. Cathedral? Definitely. A place I could worship of decay, dissonance, dystopian reverence. Beauty, like hate, is in the heart of the beholder. Your nighttime silhouette haunted me daily with impecunious, impecunious desire. I have to look that word up later. I wish I had gone first, though. I wish I didn't have to witness your literal downfall, to hear, to bear witness to that almost bestial screech you gave as another steel girder gave way. There is something, too, of the Scooby-Doo about you, a childish, nightmarish rhyme, an edifice, an artificial blast from the past I never had. Spooky, baby. You were spooky, and I loved you. Another spooky poem. Great. Thanks for sharing that, um, Potter. Um, a good poem for next week, too, with that spooky ending. Um, and this is a demolished building that he loved nearby, which we got from the poem. So, so thanks so much for sharing that, Potter. And um, let's see. We have Ted Guevara here. Um, Aiken County is known for horse breeding, polo, and other equestrian events. The poem is based on a walk with my grandniece two years ago when horse statues with different motifs, such as this, were all over Aiken. Oh, they did this in, in my hometown of Rochester, too, like 20 years ago, where um, everybody would paint horses. Um, artists would come through and paint horses. Um, and here's the one that... Uh, horse sculptures. And here's the one that Ted shared with us. This, if you can see it, the beautifully painted horse in Aiken, Ohio. Or Aiken, Ohio? Is it Ohio, he said? Anyway, let's take a look at this poem. This is Ted Govera, Short Cell. My little niece gasped when I told her there's a real horse in this play horse, or rather display horse. She believed me, and now I feel a little guilt, wanting to take my words back. At her age, it would just muddle her thinking. So I turned to the graphics and colors a real horse doesn't possess. And the palmetto tree is entertaining, the slice moon on the blue of the horse's neck. I said, well, happy skinny green banners are almost blinding it with their flap flapping in the breeze. And on the tummy of this fine steed, a wide screen shows his pals prancing around the track. Who will win? Who will take that shield of the city on its loving hamstring? My niece's brown eyes popped up to me, glad I was that she was playing, paying attention. But her eyes wouldn't budge from my chin. Ham, she yelled. Ham, Tito Ted, that's not a pig. Uh, a funny poem. I love that line, though. The um, 
where was that? The um that the shield a city on its lovely hamstring. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful line there. Short sale by Ted Bernal Guevara. Thanks for sharing that, Ted. And now um let's see, Clayton Clark. Yeah, so Clayton Clark just sent these. Let me pop the zoom back up, I guess. And because Clayton might be here. Clayton, if you're on, pop on that zoom. I'll see if you're here. So let me see if Clayton's still there. And if not, if not, I'll just read it for him. Hey, Clayton, how are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. So glad you could join us. And it worked out. Uh, we got you just in time. I was about to, to close up shop. Yeah, I know. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> no problem at all. She just popped in. So um, busy watching everybody else's stuff. It's so fun. <laughs> Excellent. And yeah. great show as always, you know, really, really inspiring. Great. Well, I'm so glad you thought so. So what do you have to share for with us? So I got a couple here, and they're both from past um, prompts. Mm-hmm. The first one's from the circle prompt. I can't remember how to say that what you call yeah, it. Yeah, neither can I. It's a tough word to say for me for some reason. I'm not even sure why. It doesn't seem like it should be that hard, but there's right. an H in there that kind of throws me off, I guess. Right, and I don't have it in front of me, so it's a circle poem. Uh-huh. Okay, <laughs> that, that works too. Okay, so lines cross. A fish on the line, pulling. Pulled from the lake, smooth as a perfect lie. Lies gasping in air for return to its dream. The dream hooked in my father's hand before he sinks, sinks back into the hospital bed, hazel eyes dimming, dimmed but locked on a latch in the sky. The sky welcomes him, dressed as he is, to his new life, the life a fish on the line pulls him into. Ah, excellent. <laughs> and then the second one was from that last sentence of a poet's in any journal oh that's right yeah that was another one i think i failed to do (laughs) (laughs) yeah oh well i tried i had had a fun time with that one great yeah Uh, so it's consolation from the susitna i think it's a river in alaska oh interesting by dallas crow in the san pedro river review so the last line was Thwit, thwit, thwit through the drizzly day and into the gray night. So the spousal argument begins to take shape. Thwat, thwat, thwat. Slaps itself into a ball. It grows, then rolls out the front door. Past my blue-robed neighbor, who hauls in his trash bin, shakes his head as though, oh no, not again. On and on the argument goes, down the street, up the on-ramp, onto the highway where it speeds out of control. The round row bounces, flops, and finally goes flat on the cold, hard shoulder of gravel. We later spit onto our pillows. This after having crawled back into the bed of vows, weeds, and strawberries. One kiss and the dum-dum song of who's right who's wrong, levitates the two of us, and we float together in the moonlit swirl of this dark evening that began with a candlelit dinner. We pinch wet thumb to finger and extinguish the night. Then he whispers, but you have to admit. (laughs) 
<laughs> that is great. I love that ending. Thanks so much for sharing that. Thank you. Yeah. Always a pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Take care. Yeah, Clayton Clark with two poems. Um, yeah, and so glad we could catch you too. Thanks, Clayton. Thank you. Okay. And um, let's see. So that will actually be the end of the Zoom. I think that might be the last um, open line or um, the last poem we have. Let me take a quick peek, make sure I didn't miss anybody. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. So that's it. So um, let's see. So I, I want to do more, like I said, I want to do more um, little, little, little po poem DJing. And um, I think it'd be more fun. I always intended it and I kind of forgot. So let me click the random button and see what comes up. And, um, okay, so this poem, um, I might blush reading this. Let's see. Um, this is How to Write an Erotic Letter by Anthony Farrington, one of the most popular poems in Rattle history, I think. And this is one of the funny quirks of uh, the way the world works now. But this was one of the most popular poems um, we've ever published because so many people Google how to write an erotic letter. So let's hear some... Um, Let's hear some um, advice on how to write an erotic letter, courtesy of Anthony Farrington. This came. This was an issue. It's a pretty old issue, twenty nine from summer twenty or summer two thousand eight. And this remains this day like one of the top five most popular poems. It's a great poem too. I don't mean it's just because it's like a search engine friendly, but um, here it is: How to Write an Erotic Letter uh, by Anthony Farrington. Here we go: How to Write an Erotic Letter. Uh, how to write an erotic letter. You must empty yourself first. Erase everything you've written. If you're naked, revise all your clothes back on. Anyway, they're all you have. What matters is the taking them off. Begin with a title concerning insatiable carnal urges. Attach a handwritten note that says, keep your hair down and, if you come here, I'll tell you something awful about someone perfect, scathing and lovely to hear. Remember, each time, each letter, is an entire love affair. Say A is for almost. B is the emptiness that follows. The letter O is what the body believes. If she writes in a letter, sometimes our bodies are too much for us, quote her. How she turns you on, turns her on. You can quote me on that. I am remembering the sweep of your hair, the light of your breasts, your beautiful eyes expanding. I am remembering the slickness inside you, how wet, how deliciously warm. I think of your uncontrollable breath. I think of your nipples kissing my chest. I think of your mouth on my neck and the sweet taste of your tongue in my mouth. Set aside nothing for later. Call this, I was kissing and sucking and wanting so badly to fuck you silly, silly, and erase it, but enjoy it first. Feel free to write a pretend letter to her father. Quote from it. Dear her father, sir, we are sorry to inform you, sir, of the mysterious demise of your daughter. It seems she was somehow sorry to say this delicately fucked to death, obviously a scandalous affair. Ropes and long-necked bottles, and oh, we mustn't go on. A man was dead too, sir, exhaustion, it seems, or dementia. With sincere regrets, I am yours. If she uses the word fuck in her letters, you use the word fuck. And, but at the end of the letter only. This is not prudery. It is teasing and she will appreciate it. I want my face in your hair, your perfume in my breath, my fingertips softly touching the sides of your ribs, your waist, your thighs, your breast, your face. What is important here in this letter, your hand must touch her in this letter so she wants over and over what is not there. 
You are foolish enough to write, O God, prematurely. You deserve what you don't get. As a cautionary measure, delete all references to God. Jesus, it feels so good and holy shit. Consider keeping God, you were so slick, so goddamn delicious, but you've already used slick once, now three times. There is nothing wrong with, I want to hear your voice coming and coming, but admit it's one shot phrase. Damp cotton will open caves in your mind. Promise her, I need you electric in my mouth. Write concerning the art of seduction and leave it at that. Tease her, truth or dare, end before you've said everything. Realize everything you are and this letter precedes you which is the loneliness of of writing. What you want is never now. That's the essence of desire. What she reads is always past. That's despair. Think about how, if she could, she would swallow the world, pill, pillow and all, take it all inside, all of you, so it could come shattering out again. But don't fool yourself. This letter needs to be filled with sorrow. Write, sometimes I wish I could be in your body so I could feel what you feel. Sometimes I wish you could be in my body, your own name amazingly on the tip of your new tongue, the smell of you, I mean me, in your fresh mind, seeing your old body arch away from your new body, hearing, seeing, feeling what was once you hold her breath, hearing her becoming, coming apart all around you, and then your own foreign release beyond your whole body, the cracking, it feels so open, this desire almost to weep, then weep in the space of a letter you once were. Yeah, that was a little blushy <laughs> reading that poem. That was uh, from Red Lumber 29, uh, from back in 2008. Um, Anthony Farrington with one of the most popular poems. And I think it probably is good advice, right? And maybe the people who find it by Googling, um, <laughs> maybe they do find good advice. Um, let's see. Another random poem, the second one to come up. We'll do this one too. This is Jose Hernando um, Chavez with Politics. And this is from Rattle Number 15, Summer 2001. So I'm not very familiar with this poem, but let's see. Let's see what it is. Politics. What did I do to deserve a day full of clouds threatening to drown me under the, their oppressive gray beards? A day when even the traffic encroaches like a murder of crows as you take shelter in a small cafe, unaware the coffee has conspired with a cup to overthrow gravity and take refuge in this embassy of your lap. A waitress tries to quell the flames of revolution with a wet towel, but crushes your nether region in a painful coup that will last for days. As you sit and think how you've always hated politics, but knew one day they'd find you. So that was Jose Hernando Chavez with uh, with politics from Rattle Number Fifteen. So I think if you know, if you like that, let me know because it was. I just, I want to share more poems. There's so many. We have um, almost six thousand poems in the archives, and like I was looking at it, it's like two thousand eight hundred of them have audio included. So um, I want to share more of those too. So if you enjoyed that, let me know. If not, and and having me read poems uh, maybe is not what is the best thing to do either. Maybe I should just find audio poems instead but anyway that is going to be the uh, show for today let's do the haiku or the saiku really quick and the saiku for this week is right here it's based on this article um from um was it from the uh, university of st andrews and the article is right here and if you can read it, let me see if i can shrink it down um chimpanzees sy- synchronize their steps just like humans um 
And so a new study by researchers at the University of St. Andrews and the Central European University in Vienna has revealed that chimpanzees share a human tendency to unintentionally synchronize their steps when walking alongside one another. Uh, Whilst it is already understood that chimpanzees can coordinate when working towards a goal, such as pulling a string to release food, much less is known about their propensity to coordinate spontaneously. And so what the researchers here did is just monitor chimpanzees in a natural type environment and how they walk. And, um, and watch them, just observe them, synchronizing their steps in the same way humans do. Um, and humans are such social creatures. We have these like mirror neurons that we want to um, copy other people around us and other things. That's how we acquire language and all sorts of other things, learn new skills so well. That's why we're such good learners. And, um, and part of that ends up being that we synchronize things, um, facial expressions and things like that. And um, so the, the discovery here is that chimpanzees do it too, which was fascinating. And now the prompt for the, or the Saiku for the week is right here. Oops, where we go? Leaves falling into synchronicity. Leaves falling into synchronicity. That is your Saiku for this week. And that is the show for this week. The prompt for next week, which I forgot to write down, was um, um, to write a uh, spooky poem or some kind of Halloween theme type poem. Because next week, uh, next Monday is Halloween. Like I said during the show, if you missed it, um, or doing their open lines. We're going to have the show a day before, just like we did last year. Another Halloween show, like we did last year. Um, last year's guest. Who was last year's guest? Um, um, oh, Ernest Hilbert. It was um, Caligulan was the book we did. So if you want to look back at that show, it was a fun one. But the prompt is to write some kind of Halloween, some kind of spooky story, some kind of scary myth. Write a, write a poem about that that'll creep us out. See if you can make the goosebumps rise up on my arm. That'd be a lot of fun. I'll try to write a creepy poem too, although I don't know if I did a good job last year. I'll try to do a better job this year. And um, I'll also write my landmark poem. Um, but that is going to be next week's show. And next week's guest is going to be uh, right here. Next week's guest is going to be Gene Hall Gailey. Um, Gene Hall Gailey has a whole bunch of books that relate um, to Halloween. Um, Becoming a Villainess was her first book. A more recent one, and a similar theme, is Unexplained Fevers. She writes a lot in persona from characters from uh, mythological stories. So there's a lot of like creepy ghouls and ghosts in what she writes. Um, and uh, we're going to be sharing those. She also has a book. I can't remember the third, the other book that I'm thinking of, but it's about like the post-apocalyptic zombie land type thing. So she has a bunch of stuff that really uh, applies well to Halloween. That's going to be Rattlecast number 166 with Janine Hall-Gailey. A special day, Sunday, October 30th, so it can be a day before Halloween, but the regular time, um, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Hope to see you then. We'll see you for Critique of the Week in the meantime, and I will talk to you later. Hope you have a good night. Good night. Good night.